me invite you to go ahead and open in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Be looking at, at a story, a parable of Jesus in just a few minutes. We are moving into the month of May together, and the, the third month of this series or this invitation to come to the table together. And I know about, about half of you signed up for a table group, which uh, hopefully has met in the month of March, the month of April. Hopefully you've had a chance to share meals together with other members of this church family at least once, if not twice by now, and, and hopefully even a third time in the month ahead. As we move toward the end of this month and even into the summer and the months beyond, I want to continue to set before you an invitation to think about how our homes, how our tables, how the meals we eat three times a day or more can be places of discipleship, places of encouragement, places of healing, places of mission. I want us to be thinking about who else beyond just these table groups of maybe two or three other families or households, who else might belong around the table with us? Who have we yet to share a meal with? To help us sort of bring those ideas to a finer point, I've selected three of what I'm calling table stories. And these also are drawn from Luke's gospel. And they're not... uh, the, the, we've, we've up to this point been looking at the meals Jesus actually ate, you know, historical accounts of, of meals Jesus ate and what happened in response. These instead are stories that Jesus tells about a significant meal. They're parables that turn on the importance of sharing a table. So I'd again open to Luke 14 this morning. And I want us to think about who is at our table what our guest lists look like. In reading about uh, this passage this week, I was drawn to uh, an anecdote or a news story from a few years ago. Back in 2009, the the renowned physicist Stephen Hawking threw uh, a dinner party at the University of Cambridge. And it was, it was complete with champagne and balloons and caterers. And he had everything set up that evening, but sadly, no one was in attendance for his banquet. And I think uh, no one showed up for dinner that night for a couple of reasons. First of all, Hawking, for all of his preparations and all of the things on the table that night, failed to send out invitations to his guests until after the dinner party was complete. And it turns out that that was actually by design, because the dinner party that night was thrown specifically to honor those capable of time travel. He figured that if people had the ability to travel through time, again, he's a physicist concerned with the space-time continuum and all of these, you know, these equations and ideas. He figured if you had the ability to travel from the future back, you wouldn't need advance notice to attend a dinner party. You could simply get there with the technology available to you to go back. So he he had set up this meal as an experiment of a certain kind. 
And given that, that no one came that night, he said he was a bit disappointed, but he at least took comfort in the fact of claiming he had, quote, experimental evidence that time travel seems not to be possible, right? Or else somebody would have been there. So it turns out that choosing the right guest list is an important piece of planning a banquet or a dinner party. Otherwise, we're left to dine alone. Jesus tells a story about guest lists and who is or isn't present at, at a particular dinner party in Luke 14. And as we get into this parable today, I want to back up just briefly and remind you that this parable is actually, it's, it's sort of a meal within a meal. It's set in the context or told in the context of a meal we already looked at in this series back in Luke 14. And it's, it's a meal that Jesus was invited to at a prominent Pharisee's home. Jesus is on his way from the Galilee to Jerusalem. Somewhere uh, on that journey, again, this, this Pharisee hears about Jesus, probably that he's a, a prominent teacher, capable of working miracles. And, and he, he brings him to dinner that night. And in the course of events, we know that Jesus gets seated next to a man suffering from dropsy, which would have caused his, his body to swell uh, and, and to, to suffer from this in, incurable thirst. And Jesus, seeing the man that night, has compassion on him. He chooses to heal him at the banquet, and he sends him away from the table afterwards, sends him out of the company of these Pharisees. And then he proceeds to, to take up uh, some of his concerns with the other guests around the table that night. And at the beginning of Luke 14, he has some rather challenging words for the behavior of, of these guests at dinner that night. And he sees in them a, a sickness. They're not suffering from dropsy, but they have a, a similarly in, incurable thirst for status and wealth and honor and self-importance. And he pushes back against that. And he, he challenges them to give up their seat at the table or to to give up their seat of prominence, not to fight about where they get to sit, but to move down, to take a, a lower place. And he says that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And after he's finished speaking to the guest in attendance that night, then Jesus turns his attention to the host, the Pharisee who's called this important meal together. And he says to the man, he says, as for you, the next time you choose to have one of these incredible dinner parties, don't just invite your friends. Don't just invite your family. Don't just invite those you hope to impress. Jesus says there in verses 12 through 15, he says, if you invite the usual guests, you know that after the meal's over, they're going to be thinking about how they're indebted to you and how they can pay you back, what favor they need to do for you. Maybe the next meal they're going to plan to be out of your debtedness. Jesus says, instead of all that, next time you have a banquet, why don't you invite the poor? Why don't you invite the crippled or the lame or the blind? Jesus says, if you do that, you will actually be blessed. 
Because although those kind of guests could not repay you, they couldn't throw a similar banquet in return. Jesus says you will instead be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus is saying too often the meals we have are about us. They're about what we want, about the people we want to know. The people we want to know better or or gain an advantage with. And instead, Jesus says, we need to have a a vision for the kind of banquet, a kind of banquet that God is interested in hosting. Jesus says, our guest lists need work. They need to be expanded. Jesus says at the end in verse 15 there that in order to learn how God likes to to banquet, in order to learn how God likes to eat, we need to be able to imagine the day that Messiah will inaugurate eating at the resurrection of the righteous. And this idea of a a great messianic banquet on the day when when the dead are raised was a a well-worn topic in Jesus' day. There are lots of writings, lots of prophecies, lots of Opinions about who gets to eat at that banquet. If you look at the the writings of uh, the Essenes or the Sadducees, or you look at the writings uh, of of the Maccabees who overthrew uh, their oppressors a hundred years before Jesus' time, they all left behind writings about this messianic banquet that they were anticipating and about what it would be like, who would get to sit at that table. Many of them wrote about how, you know, the Messiah would come, he would punish Israel's enemies. There'd be this this great upheaval in the land. And not only would he, he rid the land of Israel's oppressors or their enemies, but also he would purge the land of all who were sick and feeble. They, they didn't belong in the land any longer. And the, the vision that many of these groups had of that great day of feasting was that only the noble, only the most righteous, only the most pure would be invited to come and finally take their seat of honor with the king, with the Messiah at this great banquet. And it's probably with this in mind that one of those eating with Jesus that night in the Pharisees' home as Jesus begins to talk about this resurrection of the righteous and being repaid on that day, one of these Pharisees shouts out, how blessed, verse 15, how wonderful it will be to eat at the feast God has prepared for his kingdom. And this guy can almost smell the food and taste the wine at that meal. And his enthusiasm seems to convey that he's certain he's going to have a place at that table. But Jesus sees his remark as a chance to tell a story, to offer him a parable. And the parable is about who will and who won't actually be sitting at the table with Messiah on that day. I think that parable has something to say to us as well. So let me pray for us as we consider the word of God together. Lord Jesus, your table is much bigger 
much more expansive, much more welcoming than we could ever imagine. And yet, Lord, you also urge us not to miss the kind of invitation you have extended to us. That there's a real danger that we could think ourselves worthy of that banquet and in so doing miss the incredible grace and mercy and hospitality you would desire to show us instead. Lord, may the, the words of my mouth as I preach this morning, may the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this is Jesus' story about the great banquet in Luke 14, starting in verses 16 and following. But Jesus replied. He replied to this man at the table who says, how blessed it will be to eat at that table at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Jesus' parable begins with an invitation to a great banquet being sent out, being circulated. He says, let me tell you about this, this banquet, this, this story about a man who had long been preparing what would be an incredible feast in his town, his village. And it was, it was a huge feast. It had an extensive guest list of important people. And when the, when the day finally drew near that things were almost ready, dinner was set to begin, the man sent his servant around to let everyone know it's time to arrive. This is going to be a night to remember. Anytime you come to the parables of Jesus, let me commend to you a particular scholar by the name of Kenneth Bailey, who has an incredible insight on, on the cultural background of Jesus' teaching and parables. He spent most of his life living in the Middle East, talking to various communities in, in the land today. And he talks about how both in Jesus' day, but also even into the present time, in that part of the world, if you're going to have a significant engagement, like a, like a dinner, uh, a banquet, you actually always send out two invitations. Invitation is always twofold. The first invitation would be sent out weeks or even months in advance of the particular event, stating the, the occasion for celebration and the approximate time of the party, the feast. Sort of like we do if we get invited to a wedding, right? You send out an, an RSVP. This is when it's going to happen. And let me know, are you coming or are you not? And at, at that time and place, that culture, if you were to, to reply that, yes, indeed, we would like to participate, we would like to be there, you were giving your word it wasn't just a maybe, it was a, an oath, right, a pledge. I will be present on that day. And so the messenger would bring that first invitation back. 
and, and the size of the feast, the number of seats at the table would all be prepared accordingly because it was expensive to throw a feast. But the second invitation had to do with essentially the day of or, or right around the, the time the feast was to begin. And at that time, the messenger would be sent back out to all of those guests who had said they were coming. And it wasn't, it wasn't a message of, are you coming or are you not coming? That was already assumed. You had already given your word to be there. But this message, this invitation was to tell you the specific details of, of where the party was going to be, what hour it was to begin, when and how you should expect to arrive. So in verse 17 here, right, the messenger goes out with, with the words, everything is ready now, which means the meat is already on the fire. The table settings are all in place. So get over here now. It's time to begin. But in Jesus' story, what happens next is highly unusual. Look at verses 18 through 20. He continued and he said, but they, meaning all those who had been invited, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another one said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. If we, if we try to read this story as it would have been heard by its original audience, what's astonishing is, is that the guests of honor, right, those at the top of the list who had already RSVP'd that they would be at this banquet, are now suddenly excusing themselves from attendance. And what's worse, the excuses they offer aren't even good ones. They're not even really trying. They're not even believable. The first guest says to the master, he says, I've bought a field and so I must go to see it now. Please excuse me. But again, in, in that time and place, the purchase of land likely, th th that exchange, that process took months, if not years, to complete. Right? You haggled and negotiated all of these details back and forth with a landowner. Every tree, every stream, every boundary marker would, would be carefully mapped out ahead of time before the purchase was finalized. And so while land was of great importance in Jesus' day, right, this, this process took forever to complete. And, and to schedule or to insist that you had to go walk the land again on the day of, of the village's greatest banquet was a clear slight. It was an insult to the host. Right? This person had done nothing to prioritize the honor of their friend. But at least they, they attached some polite words at the end. Please, excuse me, I'm not going to be there. The second guest says, I've bought five teams of oxen, and I need to go try them out. And again, if, if this person has the, the purchasing power to purchase all those oxen at once, they must be an important and influential person. 
But like in our day, if you purchase a car, nobody buys a car without test driving it first, right? And in Jesus' day, no one purchased animals like oxen without carefully testing out their ability, whether they were equally matched, whether they were healthy, whether they were strong, well in advance of purchase. And so not only is this person probably being dishonest, but essentially they're saying to the host, these animals matter more to me than you do. Please excuse me. Kenneth Bailey notes that as you go through these excuses, there's almost an increasing sense of, of uh, a lack of consideration, of rudeness. And so by the time we get to the third guest, he says the excuse offered is almost vulgar in that culture. The man says, I'm newly married, and well, I have other things to do tonight. Thank you. Doesn't even offer an apology. He just says, I'm busy. It's clear that all of these important people, all of those who had been given careful invitations well in advance, failed to place any sense of importance on this event. And we might ask, well, how can they be so insensitive? Right? Surely you and I would, would have better manners, would have responded more appropriately were we in their shoes. But I think the challenge with this parable, as is the case with any of Jesus' parables, is to read ourselves into the story. Right? All of them are ultimately about our discipleship as well. So we have to think about the invitations and the excuses of our own lives. And I would venture to guess that, that many of us in, in the sanctuary this morning have said yes to the first invitation Jesus has extended to us. Maybe not all of us, but many of us have heard the, the message of the gospel, have, have heard the call of Jesus to, to come and follow him, to know him. And we've said, yes, I'd like to come. I'd like to be part of that. I'd like to be in relationship to that. But I think this parable drives home the importance of the second invitation. Discipleship is not just about those, those first words, that first RSVP, that first commitment of our word. It's about an ongoing response, an ongoing acceptance. It's about the priorities of the master coming to us, the priorities of the kingdom coming to us, the things that Jesus loves and cares passionately about and invests all he has in for months and years. And those priorities continually come before us. And Jesus says, come. I've made this ready. I've prepared this space. I've drawn these people together for you and I to be with. Come quickly. All things have been made ready. What's our response? What's our excuse? Do we say to Jesus, well, yeah, I'd like to, but I've got something else scheduled. Can it wait? 
Right? Depending on what life stage we're in, those excuses might look different. We might say, Jesus, I'm building my career now. I don't, don't have time to prioritize those people or those concerns. Jesus, I'm, I'm buying a home soon. That's taking my attention now. Jesus, I'm, I'm putting my kids through college right now. Jesus, I'm newly retired and I'd like to rest right now. Please excuse me. Next time. Right? The next time you, your kingdom intersects with my life, your invitation intersects with my life, then I'll be available. I promise. We've said yes to Jesus' first invitation. What about the invitations that have come since then? And how are we to think about our excuses, our delays? In the parable, Kenneth Bailey says, the excuses offered here would have been understood as bold-faced lies. And everyone hearing the story, knew it. And he says that the insult to the master was actually increased by the persons in the story saying yes in the first place. Right? Because that, that told the master they were coming, and so he prepared accordingly for them. Only to find that when the banquet was ready, what they really valued was not the honor was not the graciousness, was not the hospitality of the host. What they valued was themselves. And it shows in their excuses. They assume that it's the host's responsibility to delay things or to postpone his celebration until they are ready to enter in, until they're ready to come. But in verse 21, Jesus continues his story and he tells us what the master makes of these excuses, how he interprets them. Look at verses 21 through 24. The servant came back and reported this, meaning these excuses, to his master. And then the owner of the house became angry, and he ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets into the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Jesus says the excuses offered in this story angered the master. Not only did, did his friends disgrace him, but think of all the, the money, think of all the planning, think of all the animals slaughtered to put on the table that night. All of those preparations and sacrifices are now in danger of being wasted. Wasted on those who honored Jesus with their lips, but denied him their time, denied him their presence. 
They denied wanting to actually know what the master loved. So we're told in the story, though, the master doesn't easily give up. He doesn't just concede defeat and dine alone. It says the master, forgetting social niceties, forgetting even his own reputation and standing, he calls out for those who have never entered the halls of a house like his. He says, bring in the poor, bring in the crippled, bring in the blind, bring in the lame. And someone of his standing has nothing to gain by this action and everything to lose. Right? Because the stigma that followed those he's just invited, those who were sick, those who were suffering, those who were poor, that stigma would now be transferred to him and to his table and to his household by having them as guests. But it's this decision that, that shows us that the master is one who's willing to suffer humiliation out of his great desire to be hospitable, out of his great desire to fill up that table. And so he says, the banquet must go on. My hospitality will not be wasted. And so they, they call in these guests from the margins, and, and even still, the servant comes back and says, seats still remain. What should we do? So the master says, compel every stranger Compel every traveler on the road. Compel anyone with two legs and a stomach who's hungry to come and eat. And his rationale is so that my house will be full. That's his overriding desire. I don't care how important they are. I want people to be with me in my presence and to know my hospitality. In verse 24, the conclusion of the parable offers a warning. A warning to those who presume they could come late to the meal. Those who assume among us that, that our seats couldn't possibly be given away. We're too important. We, we share too much significance for that. Jesus says it's those who will find their invitation rescinded. Because this master would rather have his house filled with castoffs, filled with sinners, filled with strangers who know hospitality, who know grace, who know mercy, who know kindness when they see it. He'd rather eat around a table with them than wait for a bunch of self-important, self-righteous types to decide whether or not we're coming. Jesus says, come now, for everything has been made ready. And I think that the meaning of those words is that the way we eat and drink now indicates our response to this invitation. The way we eat and drink now tells us it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a predictor of how we will respond to Jesus' invitation when he returns. And so I think that leaves us with two 
questions. I think the first is, do we have an appetite for God's hospitality in the present? Are we hungry and thirsty, both for God's righteousness, but also for his mercy? Do we know how how desperately we need to be in the presence of Jesus? Are we clearing our calendars? Are we clearing space in our life to grow that appetite? to be present to that. And then secondly, what do our guest lists look like? Are we practicing the kind of table fellowship Jesus describes in the here and now? Are we eating and drinking with all the people Jesus says he is going to fill up his house with on that day? And if we're not, what's our excuse? This morning, we are invited to this meal, to the meal that God himself has prepared for his people. And he says, come, for all things have been made ready. But we have to decide whether we're coming or whether we're excusing ourselves instead. 